Welcome to Rising Leaders of New York with your host, David Zwerin of Hill & Moyne LLP. They present to you conversations with today's and future leaders of New York City discussing the challenges and issues relevant to New Yorkers. You can find this show at www.hillmoyne.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here are the hosts of Rising Leaders of New York. Hello, everyone. My name is David Zwerin. I am the Senior Trial Attorney at Hill & Moyne, LLP. We are a plaintiff's personal injury law firm uh, specializing on all matters premises and construction accidents located at 2 Wall Street in New York, New York. Uh, thank you for joining us for the second episode of Rising Leaders of New York. This is a podcast where uh, Sandy Hill, Cheryl Moyne, and myself get the pleasure of speaking with some interesting guests who are either current or future rising leaders and uh, and people on the cusp of information that we think you, uh, our listeners, need to know about, to know the uh, current pressing issues relevant and critical to New Yorkers today. Uh, I'm very excited to have as my guest on the podcast, my old friend from Hofstra Law School, uh, a partner at the Workers' Compensation Law Firm of Zia Proco. Uh, in upstate New York, and a great advocate for injured workers throughout the state of New York. Uh, please welcome Aaron Sanders to the podcast. Aaron, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, David. Very excited to see you. Uh, we, uh, I think we have a lot of interesting things to talk about, but uh, can you basically uh, introduce yourself, tell me about what your firm does, and uh, also uh, some of the things you're involved with in uh, the Injured Workers Bar Association and uh, other organizations I know you're passionate about. Sure, yeah, yeah. So um, after law school, after we graduated from Hofstra uh, a long time ago, we I, I came back uh, to my hometown of Rochester, New York, and um, I've been a workers' compensation attorney ever since. Um, I did about three and a half years at a defense firm, and then I switched and I've been representing injured workers now for 13-ish years. Um, so <clears throat> my practice is solely focused on workers' compensation. I've never done anything else other than, you know, random parking ticket or something or a speeding ticket for someone here and there. Uh, Zaya Proco is my current firm. I spent 12 years at a, at a different office um, before moving to this office in December of 2021. And uh, this, we're, our firm has uh, an office in Rochester, New York, and then the one that I opened, which is in the Finger Lakes. We're in Canandaigua, New York, which is in, um, I guess, probably one of the more Western Finger Lakes, but it's east of Rochester, sort of between Rochester and Syracuse. Um, and yet, so our office does Social Security Disability and Workers' Compensation, and um, essentially, you know, 95% of what we do is representing people who have been hurt or become ill at work because of their work-related duties um, in the state of New York. And um, during my time as a, as a claimant's attorney, we call them claimants and workers' comp uh, as opposed to plaintiffs um, in, in your uh, area of practice, um, I've become involved with several organizations uh, that um, whose mission it is to advocate for injured workers. So uh, 
First and foremost, um, I've become involved with the Injured Workers Bar Association, which is uh, the Bar Association for New York State attorneys who represent injured workers. Uh, and we have about 300 and I think it's a little over 330 members, which we believe represents around 60, 65% of the active focused on claimants work attorneys in New York State. Um, and I'm, I've been on the board of the Injured Workers Bar Association for five, six, seven years, something like that. And um, I'm currently the president of the Injured Workers Bar Association. Um, and I have been for 2022 and anticipate being the president for 2023. Uh, and then I'm also involved as a um, one of the board of directors on the board of directors for the Workers' Compensation Alliance, which is the pol political action committee uh, involved with advocating for injured workers um, sort of works side by side with the Injured Workers Bar Association. But of course, they have separate um, remits and focuses. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that the Injured Workers Bar Association and the Workers Compensation Alliance are are working to do? What are some of the of the issues that are relevant that are uh, you're looking to to work on in this? Uh, coming 2023 season? Sure, yeah. So there's there's a lot of issues. Um, never a dull moment uh, in this area of practice uh, and, and working with this agency. Um, so with the Injured Workers Bar Association, as a bar association, one of our primary functions, of course, is to educate uh, attorneys um, and others about the issues, about the state of the law, about any changes, case law, admitted, you know, administrative law, rules and regs, all of that, that good stuff. Um, so we have three CLEs a year that we do for the Injured Workers Bar Association. Uh, they rotate one in, the, in January. We have, we sort of piggyback off of the New York State Bar Association's week that they have. And at the end of that week, we typically will have one in Manhattan where we do a, a presentation on workers' compensation related topics. Uh, in, including annually the, at the one in January, which is generally our, our most well attended because we have so many members downstate, um, a review of all of the third department and court of appeals cases related to workers' compensation. Um, uh, and then uh, in the spring, we rotate in Western New York between Rochester, Syracuse, and Buffalo, it's covering similar topics. And then in the fall, we do the capital region um, in Saratoga. So that's that is um, a major function that, that we uh, that we or sort of service that we provide to our members. We also have a list serve that is very active, um, where all of our members are able to pose questions, raise concerns, things that they're seeing, questions they might have about a case or um, case law, uh, or um, honestly, there's a lot of. Uh, discussion about things they're seeing in their districts with their judges, practices, um, reports that they have about what they've been experiencing. Um, and we sort of try to uh, address those concerns to, to work as a brain trust, but then as a leadership group, um, if there are concerns that are sort of a little bit more macro and maybe perhaps a little less district related, um, we then will often, or, or when appropriate, as appropriate, will reach out to the Workers' Compensation Board to seek some sort of response or guidance on, you know, what our members are seeing and hearing. And that can, you know, be any number of topics um, from when is the Workers' Compensation Board going to reopen for in-person hearings to, you know, why can't we get a hearing even virtually to, you know, 
issues that we have with the medical uh, authorization system that's relatively new. Um, so those are things that we that we work on. There's also um, the board, you know, it has broad authority within the workers' compensation field to sort of administer the law uh, as administrative agencies do. So they they tend to have uh, what they call subject numbers, where they'll announce new policies um, or you know modifications to policies uh, on issues. They go out generally on an email list serve to whoever signed up for those, which I imagine is practitioners and providers, other other um, interested stakeholders, as they like to say at the board. And so uh, or and or they publish in the uh, the state register, they will they will do proposed regulations. And then there's a period for public comment. So we've had a handful of those that we've dealt with this calendar year, um, all relating. I mean, and they don't always relate, but the ones that we've been involved with relate to uh, medical issues. Um, so those are some things that um, those are instances where we um, reach out to uh, our our colleagues in the medical profession, and we we get try to get on the same page and figure out what are, what are they seeing, what are they thinking, what is their reaction, um, you know, what do they think about a given proposed reg, and then we work with them to try to you know figure out a game plan to you know advocate for or oppose whatever that might be and in our instance as a bar association um, typically we'll then offer a letter of a public comment that will say what that we're taking a specific p uh, position and why um, so those are things that we do as a bar association and then for the workers compensation alliance which is our PAC, it's legislative you know um sometimes uh we see things that we think need to be addressed within the system, flaws, um, problems, oversights, and they may need to be addressed legislatively. So the PAC will then work with lobbyists to try to um, write um, and get sponsorship, introduction of bills related to workers' compensation, ideally getting it passed, and then hopefully moving it to the governor to sign if, if we're fortunate to, enough to get that. And, and as of right now, there are um, three bills currently, and today is uh, you know mid-December, so I don't know when this will be published. But at the moment, as of yesterday, uh, three workers' compensation-related bills have been delivered to the Governor Hochul's desk to either sign or veto. Uh, I certainly want to ask you a lot of questions about about the bills that uh, the Injured Workers Bar Association is working on. Uh, you raised so many interesting issues, uh, and I know that I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who probably are not as intricately involved in the world of injured workers, whether from my side, which is uh, the third party side dealing with personal injury lawsuits, people who get injured and are looking to sue someone who's not the employer uh, after they've had an on the job injury and what you do, which is trying to protect those workers, get them their, their health benefits and their lost wages, regardless of who is at fault from from the employer and usually the employer's insurance. Um, you raised a lot of issues uh, in in your response there, Aaron. So generally, what is the procedure for how people start a workers' comp claim? Uh, I know most people don't know how to how to do it. Maybe some people have tried to do it themselves. How does somebody go about starting a a claim. How does it work? Is it an easy process? I'm guessing it's 
it has <laughs> no i that was a it was a rhetorical question we both know it is but uh how does the process process work and uh what are what are some of these issues that the workers compensation system is having right now that that we're hoping the governor can can sign to improve upon oh yeah i mean it's a it's a you're right it's a it's a broad question and and we probably could be sitting here for days talking about it, yeah. but to try to be concise, um, you know, there are issues that that can be addressed and that we hope to that are addressed by the legislature and the governor. Um, but also, I think it's really important to say that um, many of the issues that we have faced in recent times, last three, four, five, six, seven, ten plus years in the workers' compensation system, have been the result of. Um, people at the board who I think don't necessarily view their role as protecting injured workers, or if they do may not understand fully how to do that um, or, or the most effective appropriate way to do that. Um, as to, as to filing a claim, right. I mean, so you're right. I think it's good to cover just quickly sort of what the comp system is and, and what it's supposed to do. So, so for anyone who doesn't know that might be listening and probably many people do, but, but I have found over the course of my career that there is a lot of um, misconceptions about the workers' compensation system. So it, it exists because of the Triangle Shirtwaist um, factory fire that I think was in 1917, um, where lots of, you know, um, primarily young girls died in a, in a factory and as a result of that tragedy, uh, we ended up with a system where, as there was an, an agreement, a grand bargain, so to speak, where injured people who were injured at work um, while they were working because of their work or became ill for those reasons and under those circumstances were no longer allowed to sue their employers uh, for work-related injuries or illnesses. Instead, they file a, a comp claim. So it's not a lawsuit. Instead, it's it's more like it's a more akin to, you know, it's an insurance claim, um, you know, as as every, you know, as broadly speaking, every, um, you know, um, motor vehicle driver in New York State needs to have basic auto insurance. So does, generally speaking, uh, an employer in New York State need to have cop insurance. And so if, the, if an employee gets hurt or sick because they're at work while they're working, um, then they should be able to file a claim. And it, it, it there's no pain and suffering, unlike um, in your area of practice. Mm -hmm. um, so if they have injuries or illnesses that impact their personal lives permanently, uh, even if it's a young person who, you know, can no longer do the things that they used to do, do them as well, do them as often, do them without pain, et cetera, whether it's, you know, being with their family or, um, you know, volunteer efforts or, you know, uh, recreational activities, that, that has no place in the workers' compensation system. Instead, you get ideally medical coverage and um, wage wage replacement benefits. And that's really all it is. It's it's supposed to get you medical care so that you can get better and go back to work and replace your wages until or unless you can do that so that you can provide for yourself uh, and or your family um, during that period. Um, <clears throat> the, you know, if you get hurt, you're supposed to file a, uh, an injury report with the board, you know, you have 30 days to give notice to your employer as a general rule. And there's, there's exceptions to just about all these general rules or, or, you know, idiosyncrat idiosyncrasies that can apply in various situations, but generally it's 30 days to give notice and then two years to file your claim. Um, and a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people think their employer is going to do it for them, uh, which they, you know, they, they should, they have a, a you know, a filing, 
requirement of their own, but oftentimes they don't. Um, they may they certainly are often given um, inaccurate or incomplete information. They may rely on either their employer, HR, or supervisor, or um, heaven forbid, an insurance company to tell them what they're supposed to do, and uh, and then and that can often lead to um, troubles in the system. As to, as to the issues that we see. Uh, I would say bro very broadly speaking, it's an opposi oppositional system, right? So we've got insurance companies that, um, as all insurance entities, generally speaking, do, they take money and they're supposed to pro provide benefits and protection for a person in case an accident or an incident happens. And uh, they don't want to do that. So, um, you know, I would say that the, the, the primary issues we run into are that insurance companies, they're generated by the fact that insurance companies do not want to pay for the wage replacement and or medical um, benefits that they are supposed to pay for. Obviously, there is uh, there are legitimate questions about whether things are work related, whether uh, medical care is necessary, what's the appropriate rate of benefits, all of these things. They, it's, it's, it's not like I'm saying um, that there's no gray area where there are legitimate issues raised by insurance companies uh, and their attorneys. Of course there are. Um, but we have that we have that uh, inherent friction and tension in the system. And I think that the primary problems we have seen in the last five, 10 years, especially, um, is a shift by the Workers' Compensation Board from being a sort of neutral arbiter where, you know, in my early days of practice, it seemed, especially as I was doing defense work, that the um, the tie would always go to the worker to a system where it really feels like the workers' compensation board is trying to protect the benefits and not the injured workers. They want to they uh, reduce and or eliminate, uh, or it seems that they want to, and, and even if they are, if it's not intentional, they are restricting access to medical care and wage replacement benefits, they make it, they have made it, it is harder than ever to get a hearing. It is harder than ever to get medical treatment authorized. It is harder than ever to get paid as a medical provider um, who is trying to help injured workers. Uh, the, the comp system, uh, the comp board as the administrator of this system really feels like they have their finger on the scale. They've become obsessed with quote unquote efficiency, with closing cases, with minimizing and reducing costs. I, I mean, one of the things we can say is that um, the comp board post pandemic has closed all of their hearing sites, their courts, um, and they are all running virtually, which was, I will acknowledge, was a godsend. They really didn't miss a, a beat when the pandemic started. Um, and that was something that they had in place. Uh, in advance of the of the pandemic, but since then, they have failed to reopen, despite continually giving us assurances that they will reopen. Uh, we sat in a meeting, uh, the Injured Workers Bar Association, myself and our two vice presidents, um, went to Schenectady to meet with the chairwoman, the general counsel, the exec, uh, the the um, the senior law judge for upstate and downstate, um, uh, the assistant general council and a few other people. And, and we asked them, this was in, I think, March of 2022. We said, when are you going to reopen your, 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 your uh, hearing sites so that people at least have the option to appear in person? Because this is a really important thing. You know, the thing that one of the things we've seen over the years is that um, 
people want to know that their case is important, that it is being adjudicated um, professionally and with care, that there is a trained and expert uh, advocate for them and a trained and expert judge presiding over the uh, proceedings. And you can't always get that when you're on the computer. Certainly it can be difficult to get that on the telephone. And um, there, of course, are many hearings where, you know, maybe it's a slightly less uh, dramatic issue. So it's not a, it's not a big deal that we're limited to virtual hearings or, or, or capable of doing virtual hearings. But there are occasions, especially when it's trial testimony, you have witnesses giving testimony, you, you know, you want to be able to get a real sense. You want to be able to give the judge, the, the defense counsel, um, a real sense of the person of their veracity, of their credibility, um, of how they've been impacted by whatever the issue is or, or, or whatever the case may be. And that can't be done as well virtually as it can live. And, and we were told in March of this year that they, they plan on doing it, they plan on doing it as soon as we can, as soon as we can, we'll keep you abreast. And um, to this date, they remain closed. Uh, at that meeting, they told us that it was the governor had declared some sort of state of emergency and that all administrative agencies were closed and that until or unless that was changed, they wouldn't be able to reopen. Uh, I, I've yet to confirm whether that's actually accurate. But what I can say that I've observed since then is that they have continued on a policy and a practice that predated the, uh, the pandemic of closing outlying rural and smaller air city um, hearing sites. They have consolidated so that, um, like for example, in Buffalo, they used to have a hearing point in Lockport, which is, uh, and one in, in Batavia. Um, there used to be a hearing point down in Hornell, which is in the Southern tier of New York state. There used to be one in Jamestown, which is in the Southern tier. Um, there used to be one up in um, Canton, which is in North country. And, and other areas, um, and they have closed them. So that even if they reopen for in-person hearings, people who live outside of the larger cities will not be able to go easily, conveniently, inexpensively to a hearing in person. Um, and, 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 and in fact, within the last month or two, we started to receive, um, we received a notice that said they were going to stop putting the physical address of the workers' compensation, um, what do they call them, customer service centers, which used to be courts. Uh, they're going to stop putting the address on notices of hearing because they do not want people to show up in person. So none of this speaks to uh, an intention to reopen for in-person hearings. Um, and yet they have the gall to say that they've, I think it's down by um, New Paltz or something, that they've opened a new customer service center to provide uh, oh no, all of this um, access to the system. But you can't go, you can't go in person. If you did, the door would be locked and they wouldn't let you in. So I, I know I've gotten sort of far afield and sort of idiosyncratic and, and you know um, very focused, but that is a case in point for the kind of issue that we are dealing with with the board, which is to say um, they very much are, uh, in the in the habit of doing things that they say are for the benefit of people that if you just read their emails you would say 
um, and their and their um, their press releases, you would think, wow, they're really doing a lot for injured workers. They really care. They're going out of their way to be proactive. And the reality is that the vast majority of rules, regulations, policy changes that they have um, either enacted or advocated for or endorsed have hurt injured workers in the last several years, two, three, four, five, ten years. And um, I think it is an antagonistic board that we've been dealing with. I hope um, I, 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 my, my, I have uh, in recent in recent months, um, their prior general counsel left to go be general counsel at the New York State Insurance Fund, which is the largest um, insurance comp insurance entity, the, the the insurer of last resort in New York State. So that probably speaks to um, his mentality and his background. Uh, and since he has left, I uh, I have found that the board has been a little bit more receptive to um, communicating with us. They have at least paid positive lip service to the idea of wanting to be um, more pro uh, proactive about um, taking their responsibility to protect injured workers seriously. But of course, you know, actions speak louder than words and, and, and we need, you know, we need a little bit more time um, to see if that's going to play out that way. But I, but I can tell you that as of today, again, mid December, 2022, uh, we continue to hear um, disturbing reports about things that they plan to do after January 1st of 23 in terms of how they handle hearings, um, policies that they're going to have uh, in hearings on issues that will be detrimental to injured workers. And as we were sitting here, I received a reply back from the new executive director over there who um, I've spoken to several times and has always been very polite, a gentleman, um, you know, certainly presents as a straight shooter. Um, but, but, but I glanced at it just as we were starting this, I didn't get a chance to read it in full and, and, and it does seem to be a little bit more of what we were used to before with the, with the prior general counsel, which is, um, a lot of, uh, bureaucratic, um, you know, political talk, you know, uh, the kind of thing that, that, that doesn't really answer your questions, doesn't really give you substance and sort of, um, passes the buck to others to, to try to say, this is either not an issue or it's not the issue that you think it is, or it's, it's not as concerning as you're claiming it is. And uh, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see if, if maybe if, if we push a little bit on some of these, we can get some traction and get something different done. But, but yeah, that, I know that was extraordinarily long and kind of all over the place, but it, it was to try to give you a sense of um, the mentality that we're dealing with. And, and there are a lot of other, more specific, tangible issues that I can touch on um, if you want, or we can talk about, you know, obviously, whatever as, as the host. No, I certainly want to talk about the tangible issues. And no, and thank you. I, I learn a lot uh, hearing all this uh, from, from your viewpoint. I, I deal with workers' compensation issues in a more, uh, I guess, indirect manner, because what I do is so connected to workers' compensation without actually being a workers' compensation attorney at all. I've never set foot in front of the workers' compensation board. I've never dealt with one single case before the workers' compensation board. Uh, what we do is we have to help manage and 
help and guide these same injured claimants, who we would call the plaintiff in the third party case, and get them through the case. And, and very often, uh, you know, a client will call us because it's often easier to reach a third party attorney than the workers' compensation attorney. Um, I imagine most workers' compensation attorneys have a much higher volume of cases than personal injury attorneys due to different logistics and how it works. So, you know, we get a lot of questions about about various aspects of how comp works, and uh, and I just find generally that clients are 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 confused. I've definitely experienced those same kind of feelings that I don't feel like my clients always know what's going on with their with their comp claims they don't generally have an understanding should they be going to a physical site or will something be virtual or will over be phone phone and uh are not understanding why things take so long uh and this is something i deal with uh trying to get an understanding so you can pass it along to your client why is the process taking so long uh why is it so hard to maybe get a new body part added to the case or have the workers' compensation board determine that a claimant is 100% disabled when every single treating doctor says the claimant is 100% disabled and can't go back to work. Why is my client not regularly every week or two getting an appropriate amount of compensation when they're unable to work? Why might they be getting a fraction of what they used to be getting and now all of a sudden not be able to have enough money to support their family while they're not working. And for us, these problems go on for years and years and years because third party cases, hearing you talk, by the way, um, it definitely just feels kind of like the other side of the mirror because so much of what you're saying is so connected and familiar with what personal injury attorneys have been dealing with, uh, particularly the last few years, but really uh, for a long time. Since the pandemic, though, trials are happening. We do go in the building, but cases have been taking longer the last few years. And I do think the courts are really trying to resolve a big backlog. But for sure, the cases that... Uh, started in 2020 or 18 or 19 that are still kicking around, they are taking longer than ever. Uh, some cases now we just kind of feel like you can add two or three or God forbid, four years to those cases, depending on where you are. Every court is different. But uh, personal injury clients, depending on what kind of case they have, how simple, how complex, how many defendants, where they are, uh, they need they may need to understand that it can be a long haul. And if they're an injured worker, uh, it's going to be a long process that's kind of running concurrently. So these are issues we hear about all the time. So I, I as a personal injury attorney, am very interested and very motivated and curious to know about these problems and what can be done to better educate clients, to make the process go more smoothly, have more credibility, in the workers' compensation process and make it easier for someone who legitimately is really seriously injured and really should not be working, not yeah. have to go back to work, not have to ruin their health to not be evicted from their home because they couldn't pay their expenses. 
Yeah, I think you're hitting on something that's really important and, and probably a good um, entry point to the conversation is sort of some of the misunderstanding that I think a lot of people um, have about workers' compensation. And that's whether it's a construction worker or a non-comp attorney or doctors or even legislators. Um, you know, I think there, that fundamentally most people don't know much about or care much about the workers' compensation system unless they need it. And, and then, you know, of course, it is, can be extraordinarily important. Um, so I think that the, 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 the first most important sort of misunderstanding and misconception that people often have about the comp system is that, oh, OK, so if I go out of work because of a work related injury or illness, I'm going to get two thirds of my wages um, and that's going to be tax free. So generally speaking, the comp payments are tax free, but. The two thirds piece is is not really accurate because the way it works is, you know, when you're figuring out how, some, how much someone's going to get paid, you have to figure out their average weekly wage, which is their gross earnings in the year prior to their injury. And then that's going to dictate for the remainder of their case, which, as you rightly say, could be 5, 10, 15, 20 plus years. Um, and <clears throat> that's going to dictate what their awards are. And then so during a period of temporary disability, before there's a, a determination whether they have any permanent disability and, and if so, how much that might be and how much it impacts their ability to earn money versus pre-injury. The way it works is the doctors will assign a percentage of disability and you take that percentage and apply it to the average weekly wage and you take two thirds of that number. Or some people say, well, you take two thirds of that number and you apply the percentage. It doesn't really matter because the math is the same. And so the way I explain it to my clients is if you have you know a $600 average weekly wage and then a 100% disability, you're going to take 100% of 600, which is 600 and two thirds of that, which is 400. So someone with a $600 average weekly wage and a 100% disability is going to get 400 bucks a week. So they are getting the two thirds. But most people don't go from being 100% disabled to 0%. There is usually, almost always, an extended period, sometimes quite protracted, when you may be 70 or 50 or 30 or 20 percent disabled or whatever the case may be and when that happens the benefits the entitlement the legal entitlement to benefits goes down so if you have that same 600 gross average weekly wage and a 50 percent disability you're going to take half of 600 which is 300 and two-thirds of that which is 200 and that person's going to have to try to make ends meet and so the longer you're out with anything less than 100% disability, the more likely it is you're going to run into economic trouble because most people, most normal people live pretty hand to mouth and what's coming in is what's going out. And certainly in the area that I work where it's the Finger Lakes, it's, you know, it's a slightly rural region, very working class. Um, you know, people are living, you know, pretty hand to mouth. And so if they have to go anywhere from a few weeks to even a few months without their normal wages or much longer, they, as you as you said, they may run into issues paying their mortgage or rent, paying for their car. Um, the, you know, of course, it, other bills, cre credit card things, uh, bills go go way up. Um, their credit scores tank. They can uh, have, of course, in this instance, you know, in instances where you're in this sort of um, trouble, you can have marital issues or relationship issues. Um, all of this. Uh, plays in to the, the economic impact of a work-related injury and how the system works. Um, and so that's sort of a, a really important piece to understand. And hand in hand with that is that piece where we're trying to get people better. We want them to go back to work. You know, what I always tell my clients is we want to get you better and back to work because it's the best place you can be. Uh, because if you're working, then you're earning a wage, 
and you're not worrying about this system that may be up and down on you and, and leave you worrying about how to put food on the table and a roof over your head. So inherent in the, in the sort of problems of the system is how quickly can we get people medical care? How adequately and fully can we get them medical care? And again, you know, insurance companies, it, it, look, it's not like they're all denying 100% of the requests that come in. They are routinely authorizing things and, and appropriately and necessarily authorizing care. And, and many of them are, are doing their best to try to, to, try to uh, process these requests quickly. But the reality is that, you know, the insurance industry is, is, you know, full of people who are overworked, often underpaid. Many of them are undertrained. And so you end up in this system where um, they sort of hold the, the strings to um, whether people who are hurt can get medical care, whether they can get paid and, and how quickly that might happen. And then the system itself, as I mentioned earlier, the, the board is this new sort of onboard system that they're very proud of. And it's related to a, a, what they call a PAR system, the prior authorization request system. And it's all automated. Um, it started for some um, smaller areas, but but has was sort of implemented for essentially all medical care in May of 2022. And um, I would say, roundly speaking, it has been a disaster. Uh, it has created a number of loopholes, extraordinary delays. Um, there's a level one, two, and three a level of review where doctors um, put in requests and the insurance companies can either approve or deny. Um, depending on why it's denied, sometimes the lawyers are able to get involved, but often we're not. In the old days, we could get involved in just about any dispute other than um, the valuation of a bill. We, we could otherwise get involved. We could ask for a hearing and try to litigate an issue if we needed to. Um, and now, in many instances, depending on the reason that an insurance company puts down as um, the justification for its denial, we may be cut out. It may be back to the doctors to request additional levels of review. And then eventually it goes up to what we call the MDO, the medical director's office, which is a new, a newly sort of, a, uh, it's been there, but it's sort of now in charge of this system in a way that it previously wasn't as sort of an adjudicator. And they will decide um, on medical bases, uh, supposedly, um, whether level three, uh, denials can be authorized or will be upheld. And as a part of this problem, it is an acknowledged fact by the comp board that they vastly underestimated how many requests and denials they were going to receive. So they have been running two to three months behind on level three denials, which level threes those can take weeks and months to get all the way to the director. And then you're waiting another one, two, three months. Um, as of today, it's been about 12 weeks that they've been behind on most of these um, reviews. And that just means there's no decision. Um, so, and, and, in, and depending on the reason for the denials, we can't even ask for a hearing, which if we did, as a general proposition in the last several years, we have as claimants attorneys, um, received inordinate numbers and um, unusual compared to prior practice numbers of hearing denials. So we, we have what's called a request for further action in RFA1 that as a, an attorney, we can file to ask for a hearing to address an issue. And in the old days, typically you would file one and I would say 99% of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time, we would get our hearing. It would, you'd get it in 
depending on the time of year and the district, anywhere from, you know, three to six weeks. Um, upstate, typically in the Rochester district, it'd be about three or four weeks you'd get your hearing. And then I think downstate, it was a bit long, you know, uh, longer because of the volume. Now, I would say we get outright denials or extraordinary delays. And by extraordinary, I mean months leading to two, three, four, five, even six months delays on hearings routinely. I would say on somewhere between a third and half of the RFAs that we file. And, and we're not filing them willy-nilly. I mean, why would we want to go into court and work unless we needed to to advocate for our clients to try to get them wages or, or health care benefits? And so what we see routinely is these denials that will come from claims examiners. So they don't come from judges. And they will say, um, you know, for example, you can ask for a hearing. And the board will say, well, the insurance company didn't file um, the payroll or they didn't file what's called the C-11, which is supposed to show how, uh, the dates when an empl employee was out of work because of the injury or illness. The employer didn't file this, so you can't have a hearing. And it's like, so my client is getting punished because the party on the other side of this legal action is not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and, and I've seen that, I've probably seen that two dozen times this year uh, as, as the reason why we couldn't get a hearing. Compare that with the insurance carriers who by regulation, by New York uh, rules and regulations, are, are um, absolutely allowed and must be given a hearing within 20 days of an RFA2, which is their request for a hearing. So we have this completely disparate, um, imbalanced access to the system. So when you talk about what can be done, um, one of the things that is uh, that the Workers' Compensation Alliance is working on is um, putting together its legislative agenda for 2023. And I, you know, I'm not a chair of the Workers' Compensation Alliance. I am on the board, so I, I'm you know privy to some, but not all of that that information. But I know they're in the process, and I think the, the number one priority will be access to hearings uh, because. Regardless of anything else that could be passed as a substantive law, it means nothing if we can't actually go into court and, and fight for our clients' rights. Um, and, and, I, and I don't think that it, you know, that it is, um, I don't think it's a concern shared by anyone who does not care about claimants, but it is universally shared by claimants, claimants' attorneys, um, organized labor, healthcare providers that are all uh, participating in the comp system. And I, and I can say also that the comps that the, um, in recent years and in my time, my year or so as the president of the injured workers bar association, we've done a lot of, um, communication and outreach to, um, provider societies, organizations, and large practices in all, all areas of practice from, um, chiropractors to podiatrists, to physical therapists, to occupational therapists, to neurosurgeons, to mental health care providers, to pharmacists, all kinds of health care providers um, to, to, to um, solicit from them feedback and information about what they're seeing on their end, because they are vital to this system. What I have seen in my time as a, as a, a comp attorney is a, a mass exodus of healthcare providers that are willing to participate in the workers' compensation system. And the reason is it has become extraordinarily onerous 
for them to do paperwork and or now work through this PAR system. And the fee schedule rate is has was some of it was overhauled and improved within the last several years, but much of it is still relatively low compared to other forms of insurance. And so it's not worth it for them to deal with it. And so without them, the system will cease to function. And yet the board has continued to make it difficult for them to do their jobs. It has re made required more of them, demanded more of them, provided less support for them, and made it extraordinarily difficult for them to get paid by not authorizing things, by finding on technicalities that they shouldn't be entitled to payment. Um, there is a there, and I know this is I am this is I'm trying to stay on task to what you originally asked, which is what are the problems and what can we do to fix it? And so I think where I'm going at the moment is that we want to work with the other people who are work helping our clients and and functioning to make the system um, work to protect injured workers because we've sort of reached a tipping point, a breaking point that I don't think the workers compensation board has seen before, at least in, in, in not in my time practicing and, and maybe not ever um, by the, by the, what I've heard from uh, more experienced um, uh, practitioners than myself uh, compared to how it used to be in the, you know, the eighties and the nineties um, is that, Medical health care providers are reaching their limit. They don't want to deal with this anymore. They are fed up. We have comp attorneys fed up. We have injured workers fed up. We have organized labor fed up. We have, um, we have even personal injury attorneys such as yourself fed up. I've started to field calls from organizations of personal injury attorneys who are telling me our third party clients, our clients who have uh, case or injuries and illnesses that originate at work, are having a harder time getting medical care and getting timely medical care than they've ever had. And it is making it difficult or impossible for us to move their cases along and to, uh, and to, um, to, to uh, pursue the case and the claim for them because they can't get care. Mm -hmm. And they're just sort of left flapping in the breeze. So I, you know, I've met with doctors. We've, we've talked to them about what their priorities are. The PAR system is a huge problem. Um, I, I can tell you there's something called an HP1, which is getting a little bit in the weeds. But essentially, when the board decides if, a, if, the, if, the, if the insurance carrier objects to a bill, they file a form and then there's a process. But if the board makes a decision that says that should be paid and then the carrier still doesn't pay it, the provider can file a form called an HP1 that essentially the, should be rubber stamped by the board to say, we've already decided this. You can take this to a local uh, civil court and have a lien. You know, you can, you can pursue this um, and against the carrier. And I have a number of providers in all areas of practice telling me that they have hundreds or thousands of HP1s that have not been processed over a period of two, three, four, even five years. I don't know why. I've asked the insurance, the workers' comp board about it. They won't give an answer. That's the kind of thing where you're talking about that's obstructionist. That comes from the workers' compensation board. That comes from them shooting down providers and medical societies one by one and saying, this is an issue. This is not as serious as you think it is. Here's the solution. You need to give us at least this much time, like, you, like you're just making up these problems. So by working with doctors, we're starting to, um, I think, gain some um, strength in numbers and some focus on what some of these real issues are. They also, I don't, I don't even know if you knew this, 
Um, but if, it, if this bill is objected to, the board does not allow them standing to come argue on behalf of themselves to get their bills paid. So claimants attorneys do it, um, which is not ideal for um, doctors and not ideal for claimants attorneys because the doctors don't have any real insight or, or control over what's happening with their own, you know, unpaid bills. And claimants attorneys, depending on the claimants attorney that you're, you know, that you're working with, we're not getting either way. We're not getting paid to advocate for those. And some do a, a really, I think many of us do a really good job advocating because we want the doctors to get paid. So they will continue to treat our clients. But there, of course, are some who are going to say, well, that's not really my, my job, which is true. Um, it, you know, in, in the sense that we're not there to be bill collectors for doctors, uh, but we're put into that role. So these are, these are a bunch of the issues that we deal with. And, um, you know, I think, what we can do about it is like I, I mentioned in, in earlier in, in the discussion is that um, we communicate with the board during public comment periods. Three times we did that in 2022. There was a telehealth reg when during the co during COVID, the governor signed an emergency reg that basically just said telehealth is allowed for just uh, just about any kind of medicine. And um, then there was a proposed regulation that came up and said, well, we want every third, we want the first one to be in person. We want every third one um, to be in person. And we want permanency evaluations done in person. And of course, we don't have any issue with this as a general proposition other than mental health care. You don't need for, for talk therapy, you don't need to be in person. And I think that universally, people have seen that access to virtual health care, mental health care has been fantastic because what it does is it allows people who either have um, physical or mental restrictions on, on their ability to travel or go outside their home or on availability of practitioners, especially participating in the comp system. Uh, they now have access. You know, someone in, in, in Canandaigua where I practice can be treated by someone in Buffalo or even Albany or, or Manhattan. Um, and it makes no difference. But this restriction, this, this new, the proposed reg, uh, would have made that essentially impossible. And so we opposed that reg and to date it has not been adopted. There was one that dealt with intraoperative neural monitoring, which is essentially, you know, long story short, there are during certain operations, a person's, you know, brain functions need to be um, monitored so that they, if anything that goes awry, they can stop and, and address whatever's going on. Um, and the board, and there has, uh, in order to accommodate the need for this, there are techs who have certifications and training to monitor these readings and then transmit them um, virtually or by telephone to a neurologist who can monitor it and make sure that everything is copacetic or if not address the situation. The board created a, a proposed reg that said this, these techs will no longer, their services will no longer be reimbursable under the comp system. What they would instead require is that a actual neurologist be present on site um, either either in the operating room, which is unheard of, or able to come physically to the operating room if an issue arises. Now, obviously, we want everyone to be healthy and safe, but the University of Pittsburgh did a study that said um, there is no discernible difference between IONM done virtually or in person, you know, in outcome. Um, studying this relatively recently, within like the last 10 years. And, and we spoke to the, the neurosurgeons and they said, this is going to create an ex a logjam. 
because we don't have the hospital system, the healthcare system doesn't have enough neurologists to cover this. And neurologists, if they're doing it virtually, can cover a few at a time because they're going to, they are able to take these readings. But if we can't do that, then we're, we're going to get backed up. We don't have enough people to cover what we have. We, and the ones we have can't cover more than one at a time. So we're just, we're just at this situation where people who need, like, for example, um, spinal surgeries, they just won't be able to get them. So we oppose this uh, with a public comment. It's date. Uh, working with neuro neurologists and as we worked with um, mental health care providers on the other reg I mentioned, and to date it hasn't been adopted. But then on pharmacies, we worked, you know, we, we uh, coordinated and, and discussed and collaborated with um, a number of pharmacies. And there was a proposed regulation that on its face, as much of what the board does, was dressed up to be proclaiming. And it said, this is a regulation that will, if adopted, um, require insurance carriers to give notice to providers that they have a network. And if they don't do it, then the claimant can treat outside of out of network. But what was hidden in this proposed regulation, which has now been adopted recently within the last month or so, was language that said if they do give notice, then out of network providers will no longer be able to be paid even at in network rates, which was an end around a third department decision that had addressed this head on and said, no, this is a remedial uh, system designed to protect injured workers. So we want doctors, even if they're out of network or providers, even if they're out of network to be paid at in-network rates. That way we're not prejudicing the carrier because they're not paying any more than they would within their own network. And we're not prejudicing uh, claimants because they can get easy access, quick access to the medications they need. And frankly, the in-network providers like the CVSs, the Walgreens of the world, they're not equipped. They're not equipped to deal with the comp system. Because, and in large part, which is, I won't go on the separate tangent, but of because of PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, which are essentially a go-between between pharmacies and insurance companies that say what can and can't be authorized and filled. They, they provide no actual useful function other than to take money from both sides. And they don't generally know what they're doing. They say, we don't have, you know, they, we don't have updated authorization. We're not actually the ones that authorize this. It's because they have a strong lobby that they exist in this state and they're useless and they are an impediment and an obstruction. And they often are difficult to deal with or don't answer the phone or they don't have the answers. They can't get them quickly. And so normal pharmacies can or won't deal with them. So if a person goes and injured workers goes to one of these pharmacies and, and they call the PBM and they say, well, I can't fill it. This is not going to get filled. There are specialized pharmacies that know what the system is, how it works, and they will fill them as long as they, you know, and they know the rules. They're not going to fill something willy nilly because they don't want to, they don't want to take a loss on it, but they will fill it even if they can't get authorization immediately because they know that it should be and ideally will ultimately be authorized and that they will be able to get paid, even if it's in an in-network rate, which would be obviously generally lower than what an out-of-network rate is, but they're there to help people. But because of this regulation that just went into effect, these providers can no longer fill these prescriptions because they know with 100% certainty now, if they are not in-network, they will not be paid. And so even though they sprung up to fill this need and to fill this vacuum for uh, providers who understand the rules and will um, take the short-term loss in order to chase down the money eventually. Um, 
Now they now they're now they're out of business. Now they will be out of business as of, as of like a month ago. And so we oppose this reg. We continue to oppose this reg. I've been in touch with the Workers' Compensation Board about this and asked them to explain this and if there's something that, that we can do to have it um, addressed or or, or revised or or um, eliminated. And you know, to date, it's been crickets. And so um, I do have faith in the current chairwoman. I have spoken to her a few times and I, I believe that she, I believe that she, her heart is in the right place. I think that with, when, she, when, you know, in, in, in her earliest days, she was still learning the ropes. She had some other senior um, staff that I think had a lot of influence and, and maybe a little more control than, than was uh, their, their necessarily their job description. But I think that with some of the recent changes, I think she is trying to do the right things. But there's a limit to what one person can do. And there is a, I think, a culture um, among some of the people at the board that 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 we're that we're ambulance chasers, that we're money hungry, that we're leeches on the system, although comp attorneys can only be paid out of monies that are otherwise um, that their clients are otherwise entitled to. We only get paid out of money that they otherwise can get. Um, and if they're not entitled, just like you, we don't get paid. So so we're not an external cost, um, unlike you know, certain other uh, actors in the system. Um, but there are there is a culture among some in leadership positions at the board who have been there a long time that we are the problem, that we are creating problems, that the doctors are money honey, hungry, that they are doing procedures they don't need to do, that they only care about making money. And the same with us. And the thing is, it's true. It's true. We are all doing this as a job to, to so that we can get paid and pay our bills and take care of our families. But we're still helping people. The job is helping people. So it's it's wrong for the board to be to to demonize us and to be obstructionist. And so that leads us to where we go with legislation, which is, you know, if we want to address out of network providers, whether it's pharmacy or other kinds, being able to be paid at least in network rates, which is just common sense, that's probably something that has to go to legislation. Because as it currently stands, the board has passed a reg that expressly moves in the other direction. If we're talking about um, benefits, like you and I spoke about earlier, you mentioned you've got these clients who are out of work and they can't afford to be. So they may go back to work even when they are not physically ready, possibly making themselves even worse or incurring additional injuries, or if they're not going, living off of the reduced wages that we talked about earlier, the partial uh, disability benefits. We have legislation right now that's on Governor Hochul's desk that was um, written by the Workers' Compensation Alliance and sponsored by a senator and a, a, a several some, uh, assembly persons and, and members and, and senators. I, and I fail to recall their names off the top, which is terrible. I should know, but it, it's been a long day. Um, but it passed. And this bill would allow people who are out of work and cannot return to the job they had when they were injured to be paid at the maximum rate, regardless of that 20%, 50%, 70% thing that I was talking about earlier. And that seems fair and just, right? It seems like if you can't do the job, you if you're physically incapable of doing the job that you had when you were injured, you should be able to have your wages replaced until you can do it. But this has been vehemently opposed by the Business Council and the Chamber of Commerce and insurance companies saying this is going to cost a ton of money. This is going to be a terrible thing for small businesses. Um, and so they're fighting it. 
Um, the reality is that 70, I think it's 76% of businesses in New York state pay less than $5,000 a year in workers' compensation premiums. This legislation allows, um, it says that if the employer where the person was hurt can provide light duty, then the person has to go back and try it. And if, if they don't, or they refuse to, then they can't get paid anything. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing because it's really just there to protect people but it's being demonized as this ex extraordinarily expensive, inordinate, inordinately expensive, unduly burdensome on small businesses thing. And it's really not. It's really not. We know the business council and the chamber of commerce are worried about the big businesses. They don't care about small businesses. When you look at how much it costs to be a board member of the chamber of commerce or the business council uh, to their sponsorship levels, we're talking tens of thousands, sometimes over $100,000 a year just, just to sit in on the meetings. Those are not small businesses. Those are, those are large businesses that, of course, they would be impacted. But at the end of the day, a question that nobody asks is, we're talking about workers' compensation is the single most profitable kind of insurance sold in New York State. They make billions of dollars. They, they, have, they are at an all-time low in terms of the... Um, the amount of comp expense they have per dollar um, per dollar of wages paid to their employees on all time low over like the last 30 or 40 years. Why are they at an all time low? They're at an all time low because of uh, quote unquote reforms that were done in, uh, in starting in 2007 that capped uh, payments on permanent partial disabilities. So now if you have a permanent disability, even if you can never go back to work, if it is not a permanent total disability, which essentially means you can't do any job anywhere under the sun. You can't even be a Walmart greeter. You have to be that disabled to be permanently totally disabled. Unless you're that disabled, you are capped, which means your benefits will stop. It's generally somewhere between three and four, maybe up to seven or eight years. And you have to have a pretty significant disability and loss of wage earning capacity for that. Um, otherwise, it can't, it's capped and it runs out. And, th and then you're on, you know, um, benefits, federal benefits, state benefits. You know, you're not on, you're not on disability, disability or social security disability, or for older clients. food stamps, um, you know, welfare, these kinds of things. So, so it's, 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 insurance. it's interesting that it's essentially large corporations saying this is all going to hurt small businesses when generally speaking, that's not the case. And then sending the the costs that the cost um, savings that they're making over to the federal and state systems, or just to pe of course just to people who are going to you know generally speaking suffer economically, mentally, emotionally, physically um, if they don't have this safety net of the comp system. Anyways, I mean of course it's it's primarily about injured workers, people who are just trying to make an honest living and get hurt or sick at work because they're because they're doing a job. So those are the things that you know that that's the built the, you know, the, the, the battle that we're facing and they have a lot of money. They have way more money than our PAC. They have way more money than our, than our bar association. They have, you know, and it's easy to paint us as, you know, money hungry lawyers, but you know, there's very few wealthy workers compensation attorneys. We are out here making a living, but we're helping people to do it. Um, you know, and then the other two bills that are on, that are on the governor's desk are um, I believe organized labor bills. One is related to, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
because right now the standard is fairly difficult to establish a post-traumatic stress disorder claim when compared to other kinds of claims. So it's it's trying to sort of streamline streamline those and make it easier. Um, because right now, you know, the general standard is you have to be exposed to something or experience something that is out, way outside the norm of what someone in your field or profession might experience. And that can be really, really um, a high hurdle to pass for someone like a corrections officer or a police officer or um, other sorts of um, professions that deal with really dramatic and traumatic situations um, where they say, well, yeah, okay, maybe you you know, maybe you witnessed somebody kill themselves or kill a bunch of other people right in front of you. Maybe they tried to kill you, but that's not unexpected if you're a police officer or a corrections officer. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't be covered. Things like that. Um, so this is, that's a bill designed to, um, make that a little bit uh, easier to, to establish. And then, the, and then the third bill is one that is designed to um, actually increase the minimum rate that someone can be paid for a workers' compensation case if they're out of work, which right now is $150 a week. A person cannot be paid less than $150 a week for a case, um, for a relative, for a recent case, um, unless they were earning less than $150 a week at the time of their injury. But if $150 is, is, is pretty low. Um, and um, the, this bill would index the minimum rate to, I believe, 20% of the statewide average weekly wage. So right now, the maximum rate a person can be paid in comp is two-thirds of the statewide average weekly wage, which is indexed by the Board of Labor or the Labor Department every um, July 1st. And this would seek to do something very similar with the minimum rate, which if enacted, if signed by the governor, will, will more than double the current minimum rate. It would be over $300 a week, which I have to say would be substantial for many of my clients uh, where I work. Um, and, and, and honestly, probably more important than the maximum rate uh, for the vast majority of my clients. So, um, and, and if, our, if the temp total bill is not passed, then the minimum rate will be even more important because a lot of people will still be having to deal with getting two thirds of 20% or 30% of whatever they normally make. So those are things that are on the, the governor's desk right now. We obviously hope she signs it signs them. We know that insurance and business interests will be fighting tooth and nail against all of those bills. They will probably fight the hearing bill. I have gotten the sense that the comp board will fight the hearing bill if we get a hearing bill um, introduced, sponsored and introduced uh, next next year. Um, so those are the things that we do. Those are the things we are trying to do. That is the atmosphere in which we are trying to do them. And I, again, I, I want to express some hope for some some of the leadership changes that have occurred at the board but there's not enough runway yet for me to to know for sure whether that's well-founded hope or if it's just a pipe dream and we hope that there is a, a change in attitude and and in um their their general demeanor uh, as 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 it pertains to their remit which is to protect injured workers it is the workers compensation system not the business compensation system, not the employer compensation system. So that's what we're trying to do. That's what we hope to do. I, I would invite, you know, um, any, any, anyone who might hear this podcast to try to get a hold of me. You can go to our website at zayaproco.com, which is actually also, um, it's the rochesterworkerscomp.com and fingerlakesworkerscomp.com. And, um, you know, get a hold of me. Let me know if you want to be involved. I can put you in touch with people in our pack. I, we you know we can talk about what our bar association can do to work with 
it's healthcare providers, other attorneys, um, injured workers, anyone who is interested in, in getting involved and, and, you know, maybe even contacting legislators. Um, we know that's a big, a big piece of what our, what our members try to do, which is to raise awareness with legislators, because of course, what they are, um, ideally and most often, um, concerned with is what they know their constituents are concerned about. So if people, uh, reach out to their representatives, then, you know, that's something that I think any injured worker can easily do. Um, and, and we're in the process, I think of getting, and, and probably do even have on our websites for our organizations, um, like forms that you could fill out. You can add a little bit of your own words, put your name and then have it sent off to your own, uh, you know, local representative. And I think they're in the process of putting in something that would allow a person to look up their local representative. Cause obviously it, there's many of them in the state. Well, Aaron Sanders, uh, an hour plus flew by. This was really a, an amazing treat for me. I, I'm in this, uh, this battle on a very different level on a case by case basis. Uh, because as I said, most of my clients, are very seriously injured on the job and my job is to get them as much money as possible to seek out fair and reasonable compensation for their work-related injury and while that's going on the comp case is going on concurrently so i don't usually don't get this kind of a window and i i'm, I'm glad our listeners are getting a window into why is the system the way it is? And if you are an injured victim, whether uh, you're my client or someone else who hopefully is listening to this and getting some interesting information, uh, if you've had, ever had a workers' compensation in case in the last years and wondered, why is my case going so slow? Why am I only getting a third or half of the amount of money I used to get? Why is my, my foot not being added to this case when uh, it's clearly caused by some other injury that clearly is in my case and a myriad, a myriad of other issues that come up that I think are very, very vexing and confusing and frustrating to, to, to injured claimants and uh, certainly to the practitioners like us who have to find a way to get them through this. It's nice to know that the people like you are looking out for claimants and fighting to make this system better. Uh, so I think you you said how people can get in contact and uh, if they're interested in, in getting involved. Is there any specific, I'll give one more opportunity, specific websites or uh, uh, anything else you want to plug, how people can get involved if they are uh, interested in helping out the cause of injured workers in the state? Because I can, I can tell you, uh, representing them every day of my life, injured workers need help and the laws have a lot of room to improve. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So of course I, I, I uh, tangentially mentioned, but want to put on, in, on the spotlight, we have websites, of course, for the injured workers bar association. I should know it off of my time. I had, I don't, but if you, if you Google injured workers bar association, New York state, it'll come up. And then the same thing with the Workers' Compensation Alliance, which is our PAC, uh, which works on the legislative piece and, and does a fantastic job, uh, which I'm involved with. But again, not the, you know, not the tip of the spear there. Um, they have a website as well, Workers' Compensation Alliance. I will say if you just put in like WCA or IWBA, there are a few other organizations that have nothing to do with anything we're doing that might come up. But if you put in the longer one, it will come up on Google. You can see 
our websites have what we're doing, how to be involved, how to donate, how to donate time, um, how to how to uh, contact um, wh whoever the representatives are that you um, might be able to reach out to and to get some traction. Um, and and so yeah, th those are those are good easy ways to get a hold of our organizations of anyone in our organizations because of course I'm just one guy. I you know we we have an, a fantastic board and executive board with the IWBA, fantastic board with the Workers Compensation Alliance, and as I say, we have and they are the Venn diagram is you know is essentially like a, a circle. You know that the, I don't think there are many members of the Workers Compensation Alliance or maybe any that aren't members of the IWBA. The IWBA is. As I said, over 330 members, we're making an, an initiative, we're, we're putting in place an initiative to, to try to get more um, claimants attorneys to be members in this coming year. Um, it's, and it's pretty comprehensive. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to you know, get to 350, 375, 400. And so I mentioned that because, you know, there are outstanding claimants attorneys throughout the state. And, you know, that's from Long Island to the five boroughs, to the capital region, to the southern tier, to North Country, to Western New York. Um, all over the place. And so if you want to get involved, you can go to those websites. But if you need it, if you're an injured worker or you want to refer someone to an injured worker, um, the Injured Workers Bar Association has a search tool that you can use. I think it's by zip code. Um, and you can find any number of our members who are fantastic attorneys and can help ideally somebody with the specifics of an individual case. Well, thank you very much, Aaron Sanders. I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners did too. Uh, it's really quite a treat for me. Um, so with that, thank you everybody very much for listening to this episode of Rising Leaders of New York. I'm David Swearin, the Senior Trial Attorney here of Hill & Moyne LLP. It is December 20th, 22 as we film this. I'm sure this was dropping in 2023. So Happy New Year to everyone, or as when you see it. Welcome to 2023, everyone. And hopefully uh, we'll find out that by the time you listen to Governor Hochul has signed some of these laws that can really help interest workers. Have a good evening. Have a good day, everyone. And I'll see you at the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye, Dave. You've been listening to Rising Leaders of New York, hosted by David Zwerin of Hill & Moyne LLP. You can catch prior episodes at www.hillmoyne.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing this show with others.